Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Ask the Dean, episode 62 with the marvelous Mapped Mayhem team. Rachel Grubbs, co-founder of Mapped, along with myself. How are you doing, Rachel Grubbs? I am excellent. Thank you. MCAT test prep extraordinaire. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's lagging or not, <laughs> if it's me or you or someone, uh, but we are we are okay. Um, Verinia Granum, our newest member of the mapped team. <sighs> How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Give, give a little intro for those of, of the students out there in the, uh, the YouTube world who don't know who you are. Hi, y'all. My name is Verinia Granum, as Dr. Gray just said. I'm former assistant dean in the Center for University Advising at Hofstra University in New York, and now part of the wonderful Mayhem crew here at MAP. <laughs> the Mayhem crew, yes. Mm -hmm. um, we, were, we were lucky enough to steal you away from Hofstra and get you helping uh, our students here on Ask the Dean, as well as one-on-one -on -one students that you get to interact with every day. So thanks for being a part of our team, Verinia. Thank you. And Dr. Scott Wright, the man who needs no introduction, <laughs> last but certainly not least, former, oh. uh, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern, retired executive director at TMDSAS. So for all of you, Texas people, I see uh, Akshaw um, from Dallas, Texas. Uh, go blame Dr. Scott Wright for all of the TMDSAS woes. <laughs> Um, you, you can air them here live and we'll, we'll take care of it. So, how are you doing, Scott? Doing, doing well. Uh, it's a great day as always. Uh, I always uh, look forward to this every Monday night. So here we are. Yes, yes. Every Monday night we do this for our mapped members. And then the first Monday of every month, we come on here live on maps, YouTube, as well as medical school headquarters, YouTube channels to uh to really spread the wealth to everyone so i'm excited to chat with all of you we're going to do a ton of q a today so ask your question we'll pull it up here and you'll get uh, lots of minds coming together to hopefully give you some direction here nicholas says one question i have does the medical school you graduate from have anything to do with your career or residency prospects and the answer is for the most part no Right, Where you go to medical school doesn't matter. It's who you are, how you network, the grades that you get in medical school, the board scores that you get in medical school, the step ones going past fail. So we'll see how that is. I think level one went past fail as well. Um, uh, that doesn't matter. Now, there are, so there, there are surveys of residency directors out there. And prestige of the medical school is not high on the list. And so the answer for the most part is no. You, you make of it what you will. Hard work, hard work, hard work. Uh, 
Quinn asks, I went to a, voc a vocational school for radiography. Should I include my grades for that school? How do schools look at vocational schools? Can my director from the program write me a letter of recommendation? Dr. Wright. Yeah, so <clears throat> the question is, uh, if there's a transcript produced, then yes, you include it. Uh, so vocational school would be uh, would be part of that. If, if you have a transcript that gets produced on the courses that you took, you do, you do include those and in, in, include those grades. Um, how do the schools look at vocational? How do the medical schools look at vocational schools? It really depends a little bit on the rest of your application and how that, um, how that profile looks. Um, it, I don't think that it's something that they will overlook completely. I don't think it is something, particularly in this case, uh, it being a medically related program. Uh, I think it, it, it will be considered somewhat relevant, uh, to the process. And so I don't think it'll be overlooked or underplayed, but I, I don't think it's going to be, uh, something that's going to be a huge asset necessarily for you either. And, and the very simple answer to the question, can you, can your director write a letter of recommendation for you is absolutely yes. Uh, I, I think, uh, if the director knows you well, and uh, is somebody that can talk about you and your performance in the program and your personality and and your demeanor and how you interact with uh, other students and, and how you uh, performed, then that'd be a great letter of recommendation. Definitely. Definitely love it. Question from Sarah. I'm an RN applying next cycle. Should I put my nursing school clinical rotations on my activities list? It's around 500 hours. Amazing clinical experience. What category should I choose? Now, Dr. Wright, this comes up a ton because yep. it's like, well, is this quote unquote extracurricular or is this right? Which we kind of broadly say is the activity section um, uh, or because this is part of the school does this does that negate the fact that it belongs or can go in the activity section yeah i mean you know we do talk about this a lot and we we debated a little bit uh you know officially extracurricular would mean something outside of the curriculum of your of your program so if you took that as uh, you know, completely at face value, then you would not include it in your extracurricular list. However, nobody's going to uh, mark you uh, off. Nobody's going to the, the medical schools. If anything, if you get a, a hard nosed interviewer or a hard nosed um, uh, admissions officer who's reading, you know, they might think, well, this is, you know, not extracurricular as part of your program, uh, et cetera. But they're not going to, uh, you know, th that's not going to be a big, uh, a big problem. It might just be discounted somewhat that you shouldn't have put it in that section of the application. Uh, so, you know, my feeling is uh, you do what you feel like uh, feels best to you and how you feel like it will um, highlight you. This is something that you certainly could talk about in your personal statement uh, uh, and on secondary essays, uh, very clearly, uh, secondary essays would be a, a very good uh, place to put these. But extracurricular, um, I think, is is questionable in my mind. I would say no, don't include it on the on the extracurricular since it's not uh, by definition extracurricular. Yeah. 
Got it. Bernie, I have a question for you before we jump into the next the next set of questions. You've been doing some mock interviews with MAP students. Uh, what are some kind of patterns that you're seeing, mistakes that you're seeing students make with mock interviews that, that students hopefully uh, applying this cycle interviewing students and maybe take to take home with them today? So I, sorry, Dr. Gray, you were cutting a little bit in and out there, um, but I think generally um, the question is what kind of patterns are we seeing? Well, um, what kinds of questions and things, oh, sorry, interview patterns we're seeing. And it, mostly it's been um, students who have not had an, an opportunity to interview in a very long time, and they really wanna brush up on those skills. Um, a lot of it is l leading the student to a place where they feel comfortable having a conversation. A lot of them approach it as, you know, they really want to show their best uh, attributes during the interview. And I kind of have to say, okay, yeah, that's fine. They've seen all that in your application. Now let's talk about just what makes you a human being, what makes you a person and getting them to that point of really, first of all, believing that that's really <laughs> what they should be doing because they really don't believe it um, and getting them comfortable with that idea that you can still work in a couple of, you know, comments and anecdotes about things that you've done that you're proud of, but really it's just, it's a conversation and you really want to approach it, you know, in a formal way uh, and bring down, it brings down the anxiety quite a bit. Yeah. Love it. Okay. All right. Hopefully my sound is better. Yes. I don't know what's going on. A little, yeah, little internet hiccups. That's the world we live in. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I can't catch a break with anything these days. Um, Siam says, is getting a letter of recommendation from a community college science professor a good idea? Or we get this question a lot, whether it's, uh, should I get it from a community college professor or if it's, you know, I have two options at a four-year college, should I go with the one who, who has a more well-established name but doesn't know me as well? Dr. Wright, what do you think about that? Uh, I think it's okay to have a community college professor uh, write you a letter of recommendation. Uh, I think that um, I, I agree completely uh, that you want to have somebody who knows you super well. And uh, if that's the community college professor, do it. Now, I would want to supplement that letter with a letter from your four-year university, maybe another. Uh, so maybe two letters from your four-year university that can supplement that and, and extend what they're saying into those years where you went into the, into the university, uh, along with maybe other you know, other potential letters uh, as well. But um, absolutely, I, I don't think it's a bad idea, and I think it all depends on how well uh, that, uh, that instructor knows you. Nice. Love it. Love it. All right. How bad from grace, how bad is it to submit my primary application in August to both MD and DO programs? So we talk about this a lot, rolling admissions. Rachel, for, for the lay person out there who doesn't understand rolling admissions, what, what is that? So rolling admissions sounds like everybody can apply over a period of time and med schools will just review as you come in. And there is truth in that. But rolling admissions in med schools is a little trickier. The analogy that Ryan, you use that I always like to repeat is it's like a game of musical chairs, except the chairs keep getting taken away. 
So instead of there always being one person looking for a seat, there are fewer and fewer seats as it goes on. So um, when you look, you know, especially if you're someone who's several years out, this question asker is applying this year, it sounds like, or at least thinking about it. Um, but if you're kind of looking ahead at med schools and you see um, that, oh, you know, the applications, they open in early May or late May, but then I have all the way up until the fall to apply, kind of gives you I, this idea that that whole spectrum is okay. But actually, because uh, a lot of interview spaces are limited and a lot of interview spaces are granted to people who apply in May or June or July, by August, there just aren't as many seats left. Yeah. Um, so that more is- more players in the musical game, the game of musical chairs and a lot less seats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's the context. Right. And then Grace says, because it sounds like Grace already understands this. That's why she's asking. Yep. How bad is it to submit primary applications in August to MD and DO? Yeah. That's well, not great. Right. <laughs> to the MD part, to DO potentially OK. Because the the verification process, which is what happens after you submit your applications, a, a human being looks at everything and and looks at your transcripts and verifies what you put in your application, matches with your transcripts, et cetera, et cetera. The DO part, the ACOMIS part of that happens very quickly compared to AMCAS. If you submit in August, you're looking at probably a six to eight week delay between when you submit and when your application is verified. The the DO side of things a little bit faster. There's more potential interview spots a little bit later. So probably less issues there. But for the MD side, you're you're starting to get in in the language that I use, it, it starts to make me more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to apply in August and get in? It is possible. Uh, is it probable you're starting to lower those chances? Yep. So the the uh, there was uh, something I, I saw a long time ago that I, I love repeating it for questions like this is the medical school application is your first test to medical school and it's an open book test you know everything that you need to do for it and applying late is your first failed test of medical school mm-hmm. so don't mm-hmm. don't don't fail that test it's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it plays out a couple ways, right? So, I mean, it, first and foremost, we're talking just about likelihood of getting that next level, right? Secondaries mostly aren't screened, but whether or not you're even getting that interview or when you get that interview. Um, but also, it's really, really expensive to apply. So, if you feel like financially you really need to do one shot, do you want your one shot to be one that submits in August as opposed to? You know, it doesn't have to be on May 27th or whatever day AMCAS lets you submit, but sometime in that first couple weeks of the window next year. Um, And it it might be that you have reasons that this year is the right year. We're just asking you to kind of consider, like, are there other things you need to work on in the next eight months anyway? Um, Could be a time to have a really amazing application and apply early and have hopefully a less stressful experience next year. That's it. Definitely. Not yep. stress-free because, you know, it's hard. <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> All right. Uh... 
Rochelle asks, thank you for doing this question. I am in the process of preparing my application for next year. Congrats. I went through quite a bit of adversity leading up to and through my pre-med journey. Well, I failed to see that this one got <laughs> cut off. Hey, so Rochelle, not to put you on the spot, but just because I accidentally picked you, anybody who's trying to send us messages across multiple comments, because so many come in thick and fast, I'm probably not going to see part two, part three. So just make sure you give us one little nugget that gets to your question. Um, and if you ask a bunch of questions, I might skip you and go to someone else before I take your second, third, fourth. Um, but Rochelle, you didn't get a question there. So if you want to try again, if I see you, I'll try to bring you up. Um, okay, let's see. Tony asks, how many <laughs> mediocre? Mm, never mind. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay, Rachel's going to do full facilitation attention here. Here we go. Oh, Tony. Tony, Tony. Show who you are. See if you say that out loud in person. Uh, Naman, hello. I'm an international student, and I'm wondering if I am seen the same as an out-of-state applicant, or is there a different quota for international students? Different. For the most part, right? You are considered different. Um, typically medical schools are looking at in-state and then out of state, but a resident, not necessarily a citizen, but a resident, a permanent resident of the country. So green card holder, uh, we will typically say, but international students, because there are financial aid difficulties, visa difficulties for international students, different medical schools will have different, um, tolerances for those uh for international students in terms of who they'll accept unfortunately yeah. <laughs> patrick asks i have tons of clinical experience but not that much straight shadowing how much is that going to hurt my application <laughs> Scott, I, I read straight shadowing. I'm like, is that opposed to like LGBT shadowing? Yeah, that's exactly, exactly what I was thinking. I was like, Come on, Rainbow Pride, let's do it. <laughs> nice. nice. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. So, so we talk about this a lot, and and I'm glad Patrick understands. Right, there's a difference between clinical experience and shadowing, at least very specifically for the AMCAS application, where they ask you to separate those as two separate categories. On AMCAS, you have clinical observation. Physician shadowing is one experience type or, or uh, activity type. And then paid and or volunteer clinical experience is are, are two other experience types. So separate types of activities and we talk about them separately clinical experience gets you close to the patient right it gets you around the patient we, we say close enough to smell the patient where you can see if you like being around patients shadowing puts you around the the physician shadow uh, clinical experience you don't have to be around physicians for it to be clinical experience but shadowing you do, right? Shadowing is you're around physicians. And yes, you can shadow PAs and NPs and, and dentists, and you can put that on your application, but you better be sure to have physician shadowing on top of that as well. Uh, and that gets you to understand what the life of a physician is, because the physicians don't spend a, a ton of their time doing patient care. Unfortunately, there was uh, just a, a new study that came out talking about just it's like 10, 11% of 
uh, an intern or residence time is spent doing clinical stuff with patients. So uh, that allows you shadowing allows you to see that that world. So yeah, they're both important. Is one more important than another? That's going to depend on the school. Um, I, I wouldn't try to have equal amounts. I, I always say, Scott, I don't know if you agree or any of you agree that clinical experience in my mind is more important than shadowing because it's more active, right? Shadowing gets boring after a while. Uh, it's exciting at first and then it's boring because it's the same thing over and over and over again where clinical experience, you're actually interacting with another person typically. Yeah, and I like, it. I like it the way you put it. You're close enough to smell the patient. And that's important because some patients smell better than others. And sure. if, you, if you are freaked out by a situation where uh, a patient is, you know, really, really got some issues that are, are really compromising them and, and in, in, in essence, compromising the entire situation for the caregivers as well. If that is a problem for you, then that that may be a, a, a cause for reflection on your part. And so these experiences, while are, are very important, because I think they, they are necessary because they, they need to produce reflection on your part, uh, reflection when you're, when you're shadowing a physician and when you're seeing what a physician does on a daily basis and on an hourly basis and seeing that it's not all great and exciting things 24 hours a day. Uh, when you're in patient uh, clinical situations, uh, then, then uh, being close to the patient and seeing that uh, uh, you, you need to have that reflective activity to say, is this, is this really for me? What does this mean? Uh, what is the value of these experiences uh, in, in terms of uh, what, what are my takeaways here? Yeah. Nice. Well Important. For a 3.15 engineering major GPA, how to determine whether to apply to an SMP or regular master's program? It would be difficult to get enough credits to raise my undergrad GPA significantly. So this is a super common question. I'm, I'm glad the question wasn't like, because I'm an engineer, are they going to look at my GPA differently? That's that's not what the, the, the student's asking. So. Scott, the, the 3.15 undergraduate GPA, the student seems already set on doing a master's because doing post-bac work, undergraduate post-bac work, isn't going to change that 3.15 right. much. Right. And they're kind of ignoring the trend aspect of things. Mm -hmm. so, so talk for a second how medical schools can actually see trends and they're not just staring at that final number. Right. The the application services are taking the courses that you input into the application and they're cutting that. They're producing many, many different GPAs for you. Yes, they're producing a total undergraduate GPA, which apparently for this in this case is a three point one five. But they're also going to be looking at your GPA every semester, semester by semester. What was it? Semester one, two, three, four, et cetera. By year, they're looking at your GPA, science versus non-science. Uh, and so what is important to recognize is that uh, when you uh, are doing undergraduate coursework after you graduate, in other words, essentially post-bac GPA work, that is going to be producing a distinct post-bac GPA. It may not change that 
uh, 3.15 very much mathematically. You're right. But it is going to be producing a, another GPA that is a, a post-baccalaureate GPA that they can see, okay, the trend is, for example, uh, a, an upward trend and or, or may or maybe it's not but they're going to see that uh distinct uh, undergraduate post baccalaureate gpa and uh and that's going to be important in in terms of the evaluation of the medical schools of what they're looking at same same thing applies to graduate work such as an smp uh, or any other graduate program they're going to be producing a distinct graduate gpa uh, that will be uh, different than the other GPAs and will show trend lines as well. It's all important. Mm -hmm. Christine asks, I was wondering if my experience as a behavioral health technician is usually what they're called doing advanced behavioral behavior analysis with children. I always want to add the old on, onto it uh, with children that have disabilities counts as clinical experience. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most common questions I get is mm -hmm. does behavioral health technician count as clinical? Yes, it mm -hmm. does. Definitely. How much does being a low income minority affect the medical school application? So underrepresented minority, right? URM uh, is, is what we typically refer to or kind of was defined. I think when was that study? Was was it? I don't know. Three thousand by three uh, by two thousand. Uh -huh. the, mm -hmm. the, the, the study by the AMC where URM was kind of defined. Right. Um, I think it was in the, the early 90s that that came out. But anyway, um, how much is that affecting uh, a, a medical school admissions committee's um, view of a student and how they're kind of filtered and sorted and, and everything else with all the other students? Yeah, it depends a little bit on where the medical school and where it's located. Some medical schools in some states, depending on whether it's a private school or a public school, may or may not have the ability to consider race as a significant part of the uh, of the application. Um, it just depends on the, the applicable state laws in terms of how that how that might play out. Now, the low income part is a whole different ballgame. Uh, socioeconomic factors do play into most medical schools evaluation process so that they're going to be looking at this is this is an issue related to often adversity, how far you've come in the process to to get to where you are. And uh, and so that can play a very significant role. Uh, so the answer to your question is, yes, these things do play a role in the admissions process, depending on the medical school, where it's located and uh, applicable policy undergrad, the uh, applicable policy of the medical school or and or state law. Yes, yes. There was a, a good podcast I listened to about um, uh, kind of the, it was the AAMC's um, kind of focus on increasing minorities in medical mm -hmm. school and the, the whole 3000 by 2000 and all of the pipeline programs they were creating and using affirmative action in medical school admissions right. and then lawsuits, I think, from Texas and California kind of mm -hmm. just completely destroyed all right. of that, unfortunately. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
<sighs> oh, well. Audra asks, when applying to public medical school, should you only apply to your resident state? I live in New York, but I went to undergrad in Florida. Brittany, what do you think? Out of state public schools. I think that you, you know, you have a better shot in your own state. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, you can apply um, to public schools. It's just that your shots are better probably at your own, in your own uh, school, in your own state. Sorry. Yeah, that's it. We, we talk about it all the time in, in terms of uh, out-of-state applicants to public schools. Your chances are lower, typically, right? There, there are exceptions. University of Colorado has a, a large out-of-state acceptance rate. University of Michigan has a large out-of-state acceptance rate. Uh, it just depends on the specific schools. Where my biggest focus is when talking to students is I just want you to be educated when you build your school list. Mm -hmm. And if you live in New York, you're a resident of New York, but you really want to go to a Florida school, then apply to Florida schools, knowing that uh, when you look at the MSAR or whatever data that you're looking at, that they take 75% in state. And so your chances are going to be lower. But potentially because you went to school in state, maybe they'll factor that in. Or if, it, if the institution that you went to for undergrad also has a medical school, maybe they'll, they'll factor that in. You never know. But at least be educated. I, I think the, the biggest problem that I see students make or the biggest mistake that students make when building a school list is they look at stats. And they go, yeah. okay, I have a, a 3.7 and I have a 512. Let me put those into the MSAR filter and sorts. And okay, these are all the schools that I'm applying to. And they don't even think about in-state versus out-of-state. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yep. <clears throat> yep. All right. Here's a good hot button one. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel asks, do I need to have a theme or narrative to my application to be successful? Verinia, you're smiling. So I'm going to say no, as um, I've recently sort of been exploring this quite a bit with students. Um, it was something that, you know, I'll be very honest. In my previous years as a pre-health advisor it was something that we discussed. Um, and we would tell students occasionally, yes, you should have a theme. Um, I think that now, in particular, having learned so much from my current position, um, really at the end of the day, the driving theme is why do you want to be a doctor? If that is a theme, um, that's all you're really looking to answer if you want, you know. So short of it is no. But you do need to have you need you don't need a theme or a narrative, but you do need to answer the question: Why do you want to be a doctor? Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, I I talked to uh, a student recently about this whole theme thing, and and they're like, "Oh, have a theme, have a theme, have a theme." I'm like, "It's not a theme. It's your interests, right? Your interests are yeah. going to paint this picture, and yeah, you can call that a theme, but it's not forced because that's what you mm -hmm. were doing." Whereas students who try to create a theme are forcing things into like, okay, there's this one random thing over here, but my theme is, is public service. And so I'm going to take this one random thing over here and craft the whole narrative around that one random thing into public service, even though it doesn't fit. 
with public <laughs> service. And that's that's where students go kind of off the beaten path. Yep. Brian, you want to read that one? Brian might be frozen, so why don't I take oh. it? Okay, I just thought he was thinking hard there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> right, me too. Kansas I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, that was interesting. Okay, so Naman asks, is it considered late if I am submitting my secondaries in August? I'm still waiting on one professor to finish writing his letter and have been able to unable to submit so far. Um, yeah, this happens. So... Um, Primaries in August makes make us nervous because like we were saying a few minutes ago, the length of time it takes to verify. But secondaries are a different thing. Now, ideally, we would have loved it if you had submitted, you know, in June and we're doing secondaries in early July. But um, it happens that there are sometimes, um, especially with committees, letters of recommendation if it's a committee letter that just aren't ready till now with one professor that's kind of a bummer because like you always hope you can wrangle them a little more than mm -hmm. you can the committee but i i don't think that i mean again we're talking about optimal versus acceptable right it's you're, you're past the optimal but this is still in the acceptable zone is what i would say i'm getting nods yeah. from dr wright Okay, yeah, great. especially yeah, especially for secondaries, I think that uh, uh, absolutely, I, I I would not think that it would be um, outrageous uh, for somebody to be submitting secondaries in in uh, August. Uh, that that doesn't that doesn't uh, cause me to to have uh, too many. Um, it doesn't cause me to be too uncomfortable. Right. Yes, yeah, some people are just starting to get interview invites now, but a lot of them right. don't go out till September or October. So. Right. We're right. still in the thick of it. I'm thinking about TikTok songs now. Okay. <laughs> in the thick of it. Yeah. Thank you. In the thick of it. <laughs> Who watches Backyardigans with little people? Yep. <laughs> I deleted TikTok from my phone in all, in all transparency. I got a little addicted. Oh, uh, you know, you're a stronger person than I am. Oh, hey, speaking of interviews. I am... Lucky to have received an invitation for an MPI, I'm assuming MMI, interview with a medical school in August. What are some tips you have for interview preparation in a short time period? Mm -hmm. So, come see me. again, <laughs> come see me. I, I'm assuming MMI here. If, if I'm incorrect, I don't know of MPI. Scott, do you know MPI? I don't know what that is. Yeah. I know MPI from, like, the consultancy world semi-structured and conversational interview i mean honestly i feel like that's what most med school interviews are yes. they, they are mm -hmm. usually pretty loose so okay. maybe that was just their way of letting them know or austin if you want to chime in you can you can clarify yeah but well, we can definitely talk about that. interview prep in yeah. general let's yeah. go with that definition of of it's a traditional interview mm -hmm. right um and and step one is there's there's this book some some random book that some dude wrote <laughs> <laughs> the pre-med playbook guide to the medical school interview um uh Verinia, again you've been doing some some interviews with students what um what is like your number one interview tip this is gonna sound so cliche just just be yourself really um try not to go in there you know with rehearsed answers 
or you know trying to impress anyone listen very very carefully to what you're being asked because usually what happens when you're so nervous is you're so busy thinking about what you're going to what your answer is going to be that you miss the question mm -hmm. so of course listen to the question make sure you're answering the question if you need more time just take a second to say okay you know can i think about that for a minute it's okay you're a person you're a human being um gather your thoughts and then you know get right into your answer get into that answer yeah i think uh, number one is do mock interviews, right? Whether that's with, with mentors, n number one for me, uh, <laughs> it, that's with mentors, with your pre-help office, with uh, someone like Scott or Verinia or myself um, at MAPT, uh, do mock interviews. I think too many students, unfortunately, just like think about the answers. They'll they'll take this, this book has like 600 questions in it and they'll, they'll just think about the answers. <laughs> and I, I joke sometimes that when you actually say the words, you, you sound much smarter in your head than you do when you actually say them out loud and you get <laughs> you stumble upon your, your, your words and it just doesn't look good. So, right. Um, really practice. If, if you have to practice by yourself, record yourself, um, record your, your answers and then watch them. And if you can share them with someone, great. That's a, a great thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the big things that students get confused about with interviews is this idea of, well, I'm supposed to practice, but I'm not supposed to be rehearsed. And I mean, it essentially comes down to having talking points in your head as opposed to a speech. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are some people that freeze in interviews, but I think more of us are tempted to ramble. Um, someone the other day on one of our forums was like, oh, but in my interviews, I don't have a character limit, so I can go as long as I need. And no, no, I understood, no. yeah, right. I understood what they meant, so I didn't chime in all officious because like that, that wasn't what they were getting at. But I was like, no, everybody's got a listening quota, <laughs> right? And I think a lot of people can only listen for 30 or 45 seconds before you lose them. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I mean, you can hear it right now, right? I love to give context. And like the thing I always have to work on is can I get, get to the nugget? I can always give more context later if someone asks, you know? So work on that. <laughs> yep, yep. And congrats on the interview. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Super exciting. Okay, so really quickly while we're talking about uh, a couple of these things, I just want to remind you guys, you can buy any of the pre-med playbooks at the map store. I posted it in the comments, but there's a link up here too, or you, you can just Google pre-med playbooks, but if you're in the comments, you'll see that link. And then Ryan also made a really excellent interview playlist. So several videos that dig into the interviews um, that are, that's on premed.tv. So I know some of you guys are watching on premed TV today and some of you are watching on map.tv. So it's over at the med school headquarters YouTube site. Um, and we actually recommend that as pre-work. If you do interview prep with us, we ask, we recommend that you check out that, um, that playlist and that book. So those are great things to get your hands on, even if you are going to invest in some one-on-one -on -one coaching. Yeah. Rachel, we're about halfway through our, our session. You want to take a second and talk about mapped app real quick? Yeah. I'll share my screen here. Okay, cool. That way I don't have to talk and navigate that. <laughs> So um, for those of you that don't know, Mapped App is a web-based application that lets you navigate and track your progress during your pre-med, pre-PA, pre-health process. So 
Map is almost exactly a year old now. The company's a little older, but we we launched our um, our first beta cohort this week last year. Um, and when we launched, we were um, originally just pre-med, but we always had the goal of expanding to as many pre-health um, professions as we could. So I'm excited to say that right now we're beta testing pre-PA. Um, so we do have some um, future physician assistant students in mapped. It's not real obvious on the website yet because it's in beta test, but it's there. So whether you're pre-med or pre-A and for anyone who's got dental, farm, physical therapy, that's it's all coming eventually. <laughs> um, and the idea is you join as soon as you know that you're that pre-health track, right? So if you're a career changer, it might be as soon as you decide to change careers. If you're someone who's, you know, kind of doing the, tr the more traditional four-year college path, you're probably joining in your first or second year. It's not too late if you're in your third year, but we do recommend that you're at least a year out from applying. So if someone's listening to this now, it's August 2nd and you're applying in May, you're, you're still fine. Um, but if someone's applying this summer, ma MAPT is... It's not that it wouldn't help you, but you've kind of, you're not the target anymore because what we're trying to do is help you get out in front of the applications, track your GPA exactly the way the application services are going to track it, which does not match your transcripts. They've got all these complicated rubrics. We want you to not only think about how many hours you're getting in your activities, but also think about what those activities meant to you and, um, you know, what meaningful experiences you got out of them. And then it's also a place where you can um, look at applications. We have application simulators in there. You can start to pre-write your essays. You can um, have different, so you can see here, Brian's demoing for me now. There's like different overviews of each of the three med school applications here. We've also got one for CASPA for PA students. It's showing you all the different sections so you can start to think well in advance about what information you were rounding up. It's showing you all the different written answers. So people tend to think about personal statement and activities essays, but there's a lot of other smaller essays that are kind of, if this applies to you, then here's an essay. Um, so for example, AMCAS says, if you're a previous matriculant, we want you to write about that experience. Um, so we're going to give you every single possible thing that might be a written prompt for you so that you can be working on them in advance. Um, Ryan, if you want to click one of those open and show, people can write a draft. And you can see this. This is a demo student here, but we've got some drafts. You can see some yellow highlighting. That's where the student invited someone to come and comment. And the commenter might be you reviewing your own work. Or if you notice over on the side, there's something that says advisors. You can invite a school advisor, an older sibling, a friend, a mentor, whoever you like, this is your choice. You can invite them to come see your mapped file and then they won't be able to edit anything. They can only view it, except they will be able to make comments on your essays. Um, so um, that's a really nice feature that we're very proud of. It's no extra cost to you. So whatever subscription you're already in and it's no cost at all to your advisor. So it, they, you know, they only have read-only access. It, it, all they have to do is accept a little invitation and then they're in and it doesn't cost them a penny. Um, Ryan's showing the roadmap right now. So this is something that is a tailored milestone timeline. One of the questions I saw in the chat was, I'm in my third year. What should I be doing this year? 
if you have a match profile and you put in what year you hope to go to med school, we're going to give you a tailored to-do list that sort of walks you through year by year what you need to do for the early years. And then as you get into the application year, what you need to be doing month by month. Um, so that's that's always tailored to you based on not what year you are in school, because everybody has a different path, but what year you intend to start med school. And then we help you kind of build backwards from there. Um, oh, and no audio anymore. Getting lots of no audio, but only from one person. Someone else chime in if there's no audio. I hear you. I hear okay. you. Well, Alex, I'm sorry. I think it's just you. Um, <laughs> so really quick as I'm wrapping up. Uh, oh, I can talk about courses. Um, so Ryan was showing you all those super cool DP, uh, detailed GPA charts before. So this is how you get your GPA calculated. We've got a course entry platform. There are about 7,000 post-secondary schools in the United States, and currently we have catalogs for about 2,000 of them. We're adding more all the time, prioritizing the schools you tell us you go to first. And once your school is entered, all you have to do is um, start to type in part of that course number or part of that course name, and it's going to find your course for you. And then when you pick the course that you need, it's going to go ahead and pre-populate our best guest on um, whether or not it fulfills a prerequisite and how it counts towards science GPA. You as the student always have the right to override that if you think we're mistaken and we'll take that into account. And then you fill in your grade, how many credits you got, save it, and that's gonna all build into an ongoing tally of your GPA calculation. Yes. yes. Uh, so last quick thing. Okay, hang on. Anything else? Yeah, sorry, I'm just putting someone in timeout because they're getting crazy in the chat. Um, <laughs> uh, we are typically, anytime you can uh, you can join MAPT for, uh, for 14 days for free, but we're going to do a special because it's the public ask the dean. So there's a promo code you can use that's 30 days free. I'm going to find it and throw it up on the screen here in a second. And so if you use that code tonight you can get access to MAP for a whole month before you need to subscribe. There it is. There it is. So use code 30 days free, all caps, 3-0, days free, no spaces. Go to map.com and that will get you free access to a MAP account. You'll get to use that cool GPA calculator, get to use that activity calculator. You'll get access to the private versions of these Ask the Deans that we do every single week. For this one, we're doing public, but it's only once a month. You'll get invited to them weekly. Lots of good stuff. Yep, yep. And more coming. And more coming. <laughs> All right, back to questions. All right. Uh... Dr. Wright wanted to ask you this question during your time at UT Southwestern and TMDSAS. Have you seen any international applicants matriculate to Texas medical schools? Very few. Now, having said that, there is some uh, changes to that coming. Uh, UT um, Texas A&M University announced this year that they will be considering international students. And I think some of the other Texas medical schools are 
looking at uh, doing the same thing. Now, what that's going to mean in terms of a real analysis of, of how, how many international students get into a Texas medical school uh, will, will be, uh, you know, questionable. But Texas is, is limited to 10% non-Texas residents. That includes international students. If you're, if you're not a Texan, then you're not a Texan. And, and you can be from Oklahoma or you can be from Japan. It doesn't matter. You're a non-Texas resident. And so there are very limited spaces for uh, non-Texans in, in Texas medical schools. And so my experience has said it's very limited, uh, very, very few, and I don't expect that to change radically. Possible, but not probable. Exactly. As with many things in the process. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I am a non-traditional career changer and want to something. Does it matter where you complete your formal post-bac pre-med program? Nope. Just do well. Yep. DIY is fine. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, let me, let me add to that. Um, I, if you're doing a DIY program, I would strongly recommend Depending on your profile, your academic profile, it depends a little bit on that and what your past academic life looked like. I would hesitate to do too many of those courses at a community college. I think that uh, you need to stick with four-year institutions uh, would be a, a much better. Now, if you have to because of finances, then you know, then you, you do what you you do what you can do. But the way I like to talk about it is what is optimal, what is acceptable, and what is unacceptable. Optimally, you would do that work at a four-year institution. Uh, is it acceptable to do it some uh, or all of it at a community college? Yes, it is acceptable, uh, but it may not be, um, it may not help your cause depending on other things in your application. So I would say stick to four-year schools if possible. I want to be a PA. Is the process the same as med school? <laughs> Similar, but no, right? <laughs> Verinia, um, talk about some of the, the differences if you if you can. Sure. So can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, we're having some audio issues. Um, PA process differs in some of the prereqs um, that you're taking. Namely, anatomy and physiology, one and two are required for PA school. Um, but you still need, you know, your chemistries, your general bios. Those are, that's the main difference. I feel like I'm forgetting one more, but for, for <laughs> the main difference is that plus it's a two-year program versus, you know, four years plus of medical school. So so the preparation for the PA track versus the pre-med track is, is different. The requirements, uh, obviously, you're not taking an MCAT. Um, as when you're applying to medical school, but there's something called the PA cat, which is, you know, coming into play now. So again, similar, but no, no, not, but very different at the same time. Yeah. One of the, the biggest differences is the, the most schools, if not all have a minimum number of hours of clinical mm -hmm. experience. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Which 
I mean, in a way, I think it's really positive, right? Because with med schools, it's like this opaque requirement. Like they mention it as a possibility, but they don't kind of underplay its importance. Um, so I appreciate that PA schools will say things like, we want to see at least mm -hmm. a thousand. Um, they don't refer to it as clinical. They refer to it as patient care experience, mm -hmm. which is really what clinical is, right? And it helps avoid that confusion where people think, does my clinical experience have to be in a clinic? No. And they... Um, and they vary significantly by school too. Some schools may say only 50 hours of patient contact uh, versus some schools will say 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,500 hours. So it varies by school. That's yeah, and if you think about it, if you work full-time 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, that's 2,000. So mm -hmm. you know, if it's 1,000, that's no joke. That's six mm -hmm. months of full-time work or a year of 20 hours a week. Um, and um, I think that's good. Uh, it's, it's really excellent that that's required because it helps confirm for you, the student, that this is something you really want to do. Um, but it, it does mean you've got to plan that into your process of how are you going to manage those great grades and get that clinical. Right. Um, and that's true for pre-meds too. It's just that with PAs, you have the advantage of them actually spelling it out for you. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm a non-traditional 39-year-old student applying for 2023, but I don't have any clinical experience because I had to plan to start in my junior year, spring of 2020. But hey, this little thing called COVID happened. Now, there so, wasn't a question here, but we get this kind of comment so often that I feel like the, the question is implied. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to be okay? Yeah, Scott, a lot of students are going to be in this situation where they were planning on using 2020... 2021 potentially to gather their clinical experience and for for all of us that thought oh we'll be done with this in three weeks here we are yeah however many months later and and nowhere near the end of it so right, right, uh, right. what are students to do in this situation yeah i mean the first and foremost is you keep trying uh you you know you keep beating the bushes and seeing what's out there and what what availability uh there is there depending on the location uh there are there are opening up some clinical opportunities uh, that you can get involved in <clears throat> but uh outside of that uh, you do what you can. You you uh, do uh, e-shadowing. Uh, it's not really clinical, but you do e-shadowing uh, and you, you work as hard as you can to, to find things that are available. But having said that, the medical schools are in the same boat. They understand exactly what's going on. They're dealing with COVID uh, the same way everybody else is. And so, um, you know, there's really not a whole lot you can do at the end of the day. Uh, you have to depend on uh, the experiences that you've had and uh, reflecting on those experiences. And, uh, and, and, and the medical schools are going to make accommodations when and where they can uh, to under, understanding that, uh, that COVID has affected everyone. Yep. Uh, inside med admissions, uh, if you go to uh, here on our mapped.tv channel, there's an inside med admissions from a few months ago where we talked all about how COVID is affecting medical school admissions this coming cycle. I'm assuming it's going to be the same conversation for next year as well yep. uh, it's in terms of med schools needing to adapt to these changes. Mm -hmm. 
InsideMedEmissions.com is where, or you can just find it on the map.tv channel is uh, where we had that big COVID conversation with several deans. Definitely worth checking that out. Do you know what are a good amount of hours for a dual degree MD-PhD and how would someone go about seeing if doing a dual MD-PhD degree versus MD alone is best? She did a PS that the amount of hours she meant was research. Yeah, I assume so. Yeah. yeah. So research. let me, let me uh, just say a couple of words about this question. Uh, the key for MD-PhD programs and, and I think this is true whether they're NIH-supported uh, medical sciences training programs or whether uh, not, um, is not necessarily how much research you have, but how well you understand it. Uh, really understanding well what you're doing in the lab, um, having a good sense of what this, the bigger picture of what this is all about. I've heard it said over and over again, uh, from MD-PhD directors that some, some students can do research for a year or two and have, generally speaking, no clue what's going, what's really at, at hand, what, what, what is really going on. Uh, whereas others could do it for six months and just get it and just it, it, it be clear to them what, what the what the bigger picture is. So I, I think it, it varies a lot by by student and by the expectations of the school. But the key here is understanding very clearly what you're what you're involved in, what the questions are uh, that you're asking and uh, and and what the the goals of the research uh, that you're doing are. Uh, but it's very, very important much more important the understanding part of it than the length of time that you're doing it. Yeah. The, the same is said for clinical experiences, right? There yeah. are plenty yeah. of students out there with 3000 hours of clinical experience, but zero ability to reflect on that time. Right. For, right. for just applying um, to, to straight MD. The, the second part of this question is, uh, what's best dual MD PhD versus MD alone. And that comes down to what do you want to do with your job? I, I think too many students uh, mistakenly think that to do research as a physician, you need to have the MD PhD. And that's just not true. It's a different career track. Yeah. Uh, MD PhD or, or DO PhD. It's a different career. Yes. You're mm -hmm. still potentially seeing patients, likely a lot less than your quote unquote straight MDDO uh, physicians are, um, you are mostly going to be doing research as an MD PhD or a DO PhD. Your, your career and your job options are going to be limited potentially by the career that you want. You're likely going to be tied with bigger academic medical centers and what you want to do. If you, if you, quote unquote, just have an MD or just a DO, you can do as much research as you want. You can do just as much research as an MD, PhD applicant, uh, or PhD um, physician. So physician scientist. So it really just comes down to understanding the nuances, the differences in those careers and, and figuring out what you want to do with your life.
And I'll use a, a good example uh, about what you're just talking about there, Ryan, is that uh, when I was at UT Southwestern Medical School, we had at that time, we had four Nobel laureates on our faculty. Oh, that's and, it? Uh, yeah, only four, <laughs> which was more than any other school in the nation uh, at the time. I think they actually have more now. But my point here is that one of the Nobel laureates was an MD-PhD. Hmm. Uh, one, two of them, however, were, were just MDs, uh, that, uh, Brown and Goldstein had worked on cholesterol, uh, stuff and it's where statin drugs, uh, kind of their research is what led to statin drugs and they were, they were just MDs. And so, um, I think that that really does say as an example, what your, what your point is, uh, very clearly that, you know, you will make your career, uh, what you want it to be. Yeah. So one one extra asterisk on this whole conversation: do not apply to MD PhD programs just for free tuition and a stipend. Right, right. So so many students go, oh, I can go to med school for free and get paid. No, that's not what the MD PhD is for. No, you're muted, Rachel. I was going to say it's so intensely competitive. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah. also, talk to anyone you know who earned a doctorate about how hard it was right like you got to have a lot of love to stay with the doctorate to the mm -hmm. end yeah um yeah. that is an intense experience it's and a, you're and you're talking about extending the time uh by you know you know three four three, maybe four even years. more years yeah yeah good question lots to think lots to consider there and it mm -hmm. sounds like this person's thinking about those right things so mm -hmm. um just trying to make that decision. All right. I had a couple I wanted to go to and I lost my place. I'll find you again, friends. Have no worries. When should an applicant prepare for reapplication if they don't hear from schools during the current cycle? Thanksgiving is what we talk about all the time. <laughs> yep. Scott. Yep. Thanksgiving. Yep. Sorry. If you haven't, Sorry. haven't heard anything by Thanksgiving, then... That's probably not a good sign. Doesn't mean you have to give up all hope. It means right. that you don't want to miss the window and be late next year. Right. Yep. Right. And, yeah. it, and that gives you enough time uh, to be able to have some impact because as a reapplicant, what the medical schools are going to want to know is what have you done to improve your application since last year? And so if you are not starting that process until March, then that's that's problematic. If you started in November, it gives you a lot more time to to make a make a, a significant uh, uh, impact on your application materials and what you've done, et cetera. Yep. Andrew asks, is it fine to have a full time paid clinical experience as well as a non clinical volunteer experience, but not have a volunteer clinical experience other than shadowing? So volunteer or paid doesn't matter right yeah no impact well and where andrew really hit it is he does have it sounds like some community experience um that's non-clinical right which some schools do also require yep. so you need your clinical that could be paid or volunteer and then some schools are going to specifically say um, and this is something Vernie and I were just sort of re-researching, as you guys might guess. We're constantly checking on things to make sure we're still current. And we noticed that more and more schools are actually moving away from saying volunteering 
and same community service because mm -hmm. they want to clarify that separate from whatever clinical work you're doing, if they're asking about volunteer work, often what they're asking is, did you work with a disadvantaged or historically excluded population? Mm -hmm. Now, not all schools require that, but some are requiring, some are recommending. Um, so it's, and it sounds like Andrew's trying to cover all his bases there. So that's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, it's a lot to do. All right, we have a couple of questions from people who are rising first year, rising second year, which always makes me happy My to favorite. see. Let's oh, yeah. hear from them. Mohan asks, I got C's and B's on my pre-med recs this past year, but got A's in my neuroscience major classes. Does this impact my chances if I try to make up for it going into college? I'm about to be a sophomore. Hmm. I'm not sure about the going into college yeah. part. That's confusing. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. That's. I don't understand that. The the the. You know, my feeling is, if I understand the question uh, correctly, yes, it's going to impact your chances. If you're getting, if you're getting B's and C's, the C's more concerning than the B's on these core prereq classes. That that's going to be problematic. Mm. Yeah. Um, now you're going to be a sophomore. So presumably you have time to get a good upward trend, right. Mm -hmm. To make sure that you're getting mm -hmm. A's as much as possible. And, you know, maybe a few B's cause life happens. Um, and maybe another C or two cause life happens, but all of your classes count and they're not giving extra weight to your major. It doesn't work like mm -hmm. that. Um, now science GPA generally does get looked at separately from others, but yeah, you want to you want to kill those core pre-med recs, um, not just because they're core, but also because you're going to see all that stuff again on the MCAT and you're going to be sad if you don't remember it or didn't learn it the first time. Yeah. Yep. Scott, there's there's this quote that you loved that we we saw a couple of months ago. I don't know if you remember some something about finishing strong or completing the story. That's that's, that's what this person needs. Do, yes. you, do you remember that quote? I, I do not. I do not. Uh, but anyway. Right. If it was a great quote, it's probably something I said. No, I mean, uh, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph asks, I'm going to be a college freshman this upcoming year as a pre-med. What should I focus on my first year of college? GPA. GPA. <laughs> right? Being a college student, right? College is different than high school. Yeah. Nobody's holding your hand anymore. Yeah away from home, potentially the first time. Verini, you mm. talk to a lot of students mm -hmm. at Hofstra. Where, Go ahead, yeah, sorry. Talk about the those conversations and what students struggle with freshman sure. year. Oh man, that first bio or that first chem, <laughs> it's always, I didn't have to study this hard when I was in high school. <laughs> um, so time management and get your those study skills you know, in order, um, check out, you know, the on-campus tutoring center. Hopefully they, there's one available anywhere where you can go and don't wait until, you know, everything's falling apart. Um, talk to your advisors, talk to your tutors, um, try to get a system in place, right? Time management is key. Get a study schedule going. These are the people on campus that can help you with that. Your academic, your academic advisor or a tutor, um, and, you know, start off strong because it's a lot harder to try to come back from a C or a D, uh, than if you just start off, you know, for, with higher scores. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Too many students focus on 
trying to do way too much. They join all of the pre-med mm-hmm. clubs and start to apply to be like on different boards and presidents and treasurers or whatever. And it's just like one thing at a time, learn how to be a good student. Cause it's, yeah. it's much easier to add activities than to fix a GPA. You got it. B says for letters of recommendations for med school, is it bad to use one from two plus years ago, even if it is really strong? How would I quote keep in touch if I don't plan to take another class with this professor? Well, there is email and uh, (laughs) there's also there's also a telephone (laughs) and uh, you can use your legs to walk over to their office and say hello and uh, chat with them about what's going on and how things are going. And so, you know, it's a good time to practice Morse code. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Keep going. Oh, and, and you know, I, I just, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think that it, it takes effort. It takes a real effort to to do that, and uh, you have to uh, uh, you have to make that effort, and you have to continue in that effort. And and I I think when you do that with a uh, with a professor, I think you you do it. You don't do it. You don't do it covertly. You go into it saying to the professor, look. I really like you. I had a good experience with with you. I want to uh, keep in touch with you for a variety of reasons, but a a key reason I want to keep in touch with you is because I want you to know me. I want you to know me well because we connected so well, and I want you to be able to write me a letter of recommendation when the time comes. And so, just let them know that upfront, and uh, and let them know that you know you you really do want to keep in touch with them, and and let them know how things are going with you. And and I think they appreciate that that straightforward uh, that straightforwardness that allows them to sort of be uh, be a part of your life in in, in a continuing kind of way. That's it. Hundred percent, and I would also say because I think there's always some fear behind these questions of like, am I going to be annoying them? Um, I think, like Scott said, being transparent helps stave that off. I also think um, as students, sometimes students underestimate how much teachers enjoy hearing from former students, right? Like for us, one of our favorite things is to hear from people after we're done working with them. So. You know, I got these interviews, I got these invites or, you know, I'm in med one now. And, you know, um, I, I have joked with you guys that one of my if for those of you who are regular listeners, one of my doctors is a former Princeton Review student. <laughs> like, She's not a kid. She's a grown up just like me. But, <laughs> um, you, you know, we were much younger when I first met her. Um, and, and I think people really enjoy that. So if you think about you know, being upbeat and short, whether it's the pop into the office or the email, right? It's these are the things I've been up to and I'm still planning to apply this year and sure hoping you'll you'll want to do a letter for me then. And they can always say no. And follow up with them too. let them know how the process is going. So mm-hmm. many times I met with students in the middle of applying and then I wouldn't hear from them again. Yeah, so definitely. Send them a quick note just to say, hey, it worked out. It didn't work out, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Keep them informed. Yeah. Good point. And then, Scott, just to wrap this one up, what is your thought on the date of the letter? If I'm applying in 2021, 
You want it to be in 2021. So you do not want an early letter. You want the letter to be in dated the, the, the year that you're applying. All right. Coming back to my question about international students, does anything change if I have been in the U.S. for 10 years now and completed middle school? Nope, it does not. Nope. Unless you're a permanent resident alien, then it doesn't matter. Strictly status. And so part of why I brought this back is this also applies to the person who is asking about out of state. I think sometimes people get confused and they think, well, I'm going to have an in with that state if I visit there a lot or if I go to school there. And what in-state and out-of-state means, it's not geog geographic loyalty. It's does your tax money go to my government? Mm -hmm. Right? That's that's what that question is getting at. Um, so, And there are schools that, that look favorably on, oh, you really do come to our state a lot. Mm -hmm. right? I, I tell a story of a Canadian applicant uh, applying to University of Kentucky state school in Kentucky and they're like why are you applying to us and she's like my uncle lives in Kentucky I'm there every year and they're like okay we'll invite you for an interview mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah but some tax money is going to that government <laughs> right when she's visiting right <laughs> all right is it a red flag if you only fill 11 of the 15 spots in AMCAS activity section. 5,000 plus hours as both an ER tech and medical scribe at a level one trauma center have shadowing and volunteer, no research. It's a very common concern that students have of like, I don't have 15 spots. Uh, is that is that a problem? Well, I mean, I, I think this is a cause for reflection, first of all, on the part of the student. Um, what what are you what are you filling those slots with? What 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 you know, what you're mentioning here is you're an ER tech and your medical scribe at a level one trauma center. OK, that's great. Have you done any vol volunteer experiences? OK, you say you have some volunteer experiences. Have you worked uh, outside of these things, uh, outside of these uh um, these, uh, clinical, uh, jobs, um, have you, what, what hobbies do you have? Um, you know, so, but all in all, what I would say is no, uh, if, if that's what you got, then that's what you got. Don't create something out of nothing because that's going to be super obvious. If you, uh, try to, you know, fill slots with stuff that's really not, you know, not applicable. Yeah. No fluff. No fluff. Yeah. Fluff is obvious. <laughs> Cameron says, do I need to take the duet and snapshot of schools only require Casper? Nope. You do not. And, and just an update for some people who may not know, Altus, the company behind Casper duet and snapshot has changed their process for this cycle. Cause there's been a lot of confusion around duet and snapshot originally you had to complete duet and snapshot within like 14 days of taking Casper. Now it's take it whenever you want. You'll be fine. Just go back in and, and take it. And if you take it and the school doesn't require it, the school won't get it. If the school wakes up tomorrow and they go, Oh, we want snapshot, then you'll have it done and you don't have to worry about it. Deep says how many retakes of the MCAT can I take going for my third attempt now my GP is near perfect and have numerous experiences in the medical field including shadowing scribing volunteering Rachel 
Do you know the, the updated rules on this? I do. So you can take the MCAT three times in one year, four times in two years. So D. Pierce says he's going for his third attempt now. That means he has one attempt left for next year if he wants it. And seven across a lifetime. So that's how many times you can. Now, you know, I have seven words of information about deep here, but what I want to point out is if your GPA is near perfect, uh, you know, is there a huge discrepancy between your MCAT and your GPA where it's really low? Or are you doing one of those things where you got a 91st percentile and now you're mad and you're retaking trying to get 96? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm taking a pretty big guess here. So, you, you know, I might be wrong. But I'm just saying, be, be mindful of when and how you're retaking. Um, uh, it's just, you know, at some point you want to move on. <laughs> <laughs> I, it blows my mind how many students retake 515s and 516 because they want a 522. <laughs> it's, there's, it's called uh, the, the law of diminishing returns, people. Yeah, I mean, once your numbers are good enough to get you an interview, then it's the interview that matters. Right. So if you have interview friendly stats, then you want to be thinking about, OK, I have my good stats, but do I have my good story and do I have my good experiences and do I have good interview? Prep? <laughs> um, but, all right. There was one other MCAT question, so I might grab that real quick. while We're on the MCAT topic. Is a 124 in bio biochem on the MCAT too much of a red flag for adcoms on its own? All of the sections two to seven points higher than that, or will it likely depend on holistic review? I like to see that by the end of your question, you're already on the right track. I'm going to have Dr. Wright weigh in on this too, but we get this a lot. And it's usually the question is either I got a 124 or a low score on one science, or I got a low score on cars. Is that going to be a red flag? Mm -hmm. And uh, in my experience, usually they're looking more at the composite. Scott, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I agree with that. I do think that um, it depends a little bit on their academic record. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so if you're in bio biochem, for example, the 124, if you made, you know, great grades in biochem and all your biology classes, then it may lessen the concern about that. Uh, CARS sometimes is a little bit different story. I, uh, as, as, as with the old MCAT in the, in the verbal section, I think there was always some concern if it was very low, not if it was somewhat low, but very, very low, then it could be uh, a, a very, you know, it could be somewhat problematic, but uh, generally speaking, I'd say it is very, um, very uh, dependent on holistic review and what they're what they're looking for, and uh, you know, looking at the big picture of everything you've got going on in your application. So, I would say um, it it really is a, a lot about that, a lot about the holistic review part. I think it's it's you know, it, it makes me I, I like it that you even mentioned that in your question. Uh, that means it's on your mind. And so I think that that's, uh, uh, that's exactly what, what I would say. Taking my MCAT on September 10th, but I'm not even remotely prepared because of classes at two research and two research positions, et cetera. I can't find much time for this upcoming exam. Is it viewed badly if I retake the exam? So if you know you're not going to be prepared for it, don't take, take advantage it. of the cancellation policy that the yes. VAMC has right now. Cancel it and reschedule it for a later time. 
Mm-hmm. Period. End of story. Definitely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The bronze deadline is usually about a month out, right? So you should still be able to actually get your money back if you pull the trigger. I think in the next couple of days. Please don't quote me. Go check the double AMC. I, I thought the double AMC is just waiving all cancellation fees with because of COVID. I think just COVID related cancellations. Okay. I could be wrong. Go check the double AMC policy. <laughs> go, go check them. But yeah. <laughs> I think we're all for greed. If you know you're not going to be ready, don't, don't take it. it. Don't take it in January or March. Yeah. Uh, those dates will come out in September, so you'll have to cancel. You won't be able to reschedule. You have to cancel and then wait for the new dates. And let me let me let me add to this to this answer to this question. What you said here is you knew that you had signed up for a September 10 uh, exam. And then you say, but I'm not even remotely prepared because of classes at two research positions, et cetera. This is a cause for uh, backing up a little bit and saying, what's going on here? What's happening here? Reflection is important. Reflection here is going to be vital to say, you know, the MCAT is an important part of the medical school admissions process. And if you are too busy to study for the MCAT, then that's going to be problematic. You have got to release some time. Maybe you need to wait a year before you apply. Maybe you uh, need to back off of one of the research positions or whatever. But there needs to be some heavy reflection here that you've gotten to this point where you are so busy that you can't study for the MCAT knowing that the MCAT is a, is a, is a very important part of the process. So I think just, you know, reflection, reflect here. What do I need to do schedule wise in my life to be able to manage this in a way that will allow me to do what I want to do, but also take care of the things that are necessary. Great. I think it's the reschedule fees that are all waived right now. Not the quote unquote cancellation fees. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you're in September, you're not going to be able to reschedule for next year. Um, that's just the way it is every year. You just have to, usually we get MCAT dates for the next year sometime in mid-September, and then we get actual registration announcements later in the fall. Um, all right, we've had several people chime in about clinical, um, whether or not it has to be in a hospital what you have to be certified before you get it, what kind of jobs are. So I'm going to pick one and we'll just sort of address it. Jane asks, are patient care experiences synonymous with patient interactions? How can you garner patient care experiences when you are not certified to be an EMT, CNA, et cetera? Patient care, patient care. Rachel, what do you think? Well, depending on your state law, you may not need that kind of certification, right? So, For example, if you want to be a medical assistant, which I think is a great clinical or patient care experience, whether you're pre-PA or pre-med, either way, that's a great way to get that direct hands-on patient care. In a lot of states, you don't need to be a certified MA. Um, So check check your local laws, but you might be able to find a private practice that's looking for an MA that's willing to train you on the job, and that might be perfectly legal in your state. Um, which sort of leads me to the other thing that one of the questions I'm not posting, somebody says, I've never worked in a hospital. Does that mean it's bad? Does that mean it doesn't count as clinical? Clinical does not have to be in a clinic. 
It also and does just not because it's in a clinic doesn't mean it's clinical. Right. Exactly. And and clinical work does not have to be paid. Uh, so you know, a hospice volunteer or a volunteer to, at a uh, nursing home, uh, vol- volunteer work can be clinical. So yeah. uh, you don't have to be working for it to be clinical. Yeah, I've been talking a lot about working tonight and lately because with some of the restrictions that have come with COVID and maybe we're loosening and maybe as we head into fall, we're going to tighten up again. Volunteer work seems to be actually harder to procure than paid work. Um, So I think there's some real appeal in volunteer work because often it means the schedule's a little bit more flexible. But if you really need that clinical experience and you can't find volunteer positions, then then look at paid. Um, Or maybe you're doing the paid because you need the money, although not all those jobs pay super well. Um, All right either all right well it's 724 so we've got a few minutes left let's see i saw one i wanted to go back to the suspense is killing me i know (laughs) jared asks is it looked down upon to get everything volunteer leadership shadow and clinical research done in one year aka from now till apps open (sighs) what's the alternative yeah (laughs) yeah if you you can't go back in time so (laughs) well you can't i can't i have (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's two options. You either do it and apply or not apply in the time frame that you're saying you want to apply. And that way you'll have a longer period of time to do those things. Yeah. Does it I mean, look fantastic? Probably not, but it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And better start in August and go all the way to May than, I mean, then apply in May and go, well, I was going to do it on this gap year. <laughs> like that's definitely not going to get you the desired no. result. That's right. Yeah. Uh, at least now you have nine months to really get some experiences and reflect and yep. start to make some meaning out of it. Yep. And the year following appli- submitting your application to when you matriculate school and the few months between submitting the application and interviews to get more experiences. So yeah, start now. As as the famous quote goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20, 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Randy asks, I work a full-time clinical job and attend school part-time. I lack volunteering or community service hours. Free time is limited. Should I work on improving both or focus in on only one? I think this goes back to what Rachel just mentioned a few minutes ago about maybe focusing on, if you can only focus on one, the community service aspect, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I thought she was frozen. (laughs) Yeah. So, so just a clarification because I think Randy is confusing a couple things and and this just goes back to something we mentioned earlier. I think Randy is saying I lack clinical volunteering or community service hours, right? Should I focus on one? Cause to me, community service hours is volunteering. Yeah. So I I think he's differentiating paid clinical, which is what he does Mm -hmm. versus volunteer clinical which is what he thinks is different and or better than paid clinical so 
let's let's assume that's what he means because I think that's what he means. And volunteering and community service are the same thing. So go volunteer, get some community service, and that's the same. Even if it's a little bit every week, you know, it doesn't have to be a huge amount every week, even if it's just an hour or two uh, every other week or whatever, any amount that you can do that, you know, do it. And, uh, you know, that, that, that still counts. Yeah. It adds up over time. Yep. All right. Good luck, Randy. That That's a good question. All right. So let's uh, remind everybody, if you want to try the Mapped app, um, a lot of you are asking about how can I see that detailed GPA calculation that matches my transcript? Well, you can see that in the Mapped app. A lot of you are asking, well, how do I know what I'm supposed to do when? Hey, you can see that in the Mapped app. <laughs> so 30 days free is the coupon. I'm going to throw that up here on the screen. Maybe. There I am. So 30 days free, three or 30 days free. So three zero days free is the is the promo code to use. So if you go to map.com and click try for free, you can enter that code. And instead of getting two weeks free, you'll get a whole month free before you need to commit financially. So no credit card even required. You can just go ahead and use it with just your name and email. And you can always enter a card later when you're ready to subscribe. Um, so go check out Mapped, and uh, that way you can see us every week. Yes, yes. Thank you, everyone, for coming. We are here, a public, public Asadine on all of the channels, uh, the first Monday of every month. And then if you're a MAPTA member, you get to see us every week. So we'll see you next time, hopefully. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out MAPT, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.